Principles Seminar, and the purpose of this seminar was to give teachers an understanding of how to help kids that struggle with anxiety. And one of the speakers said that the leading cause of anxiety in our world today was the amount of information that we consume and process on a daily basis. This causes anxiety not just for children, but for everyone. And think about somebody maybe 30 or 40 years ago, how they would consume the news. Well, maybe they would have a newspaper they would flip through during their morning breakfast, and maybe they would watch a 30-minute local news program before going to bed. Well, compare that to today. We have news stations that are 24 hours dedicated to bringing you news. We have apps on our cell phones that constantly ping us with news updates. And if that's not enough, we have those great, fabulous news feeds where hundreds and thousands of our friends are constantly posting news stories. And maybe if you had a question 30 or 40 years ago you wanted to know the answer to, well, you would go to the library and you would take out a book and you would research that question. But we don't do that today, do we? No, we just take out our phones, our tablets, or our computers, and we enter that question into Google. 3.5 billion Google searches every day, and each result gives you hundreds of pages of information. We consume a lot of information. But we don't only consume a lot of information, we have to process a lot of information as well. Now, can you imagine somebody living 30 years ago, what fake news looked like? And if you're like me, you missed the fake news that we could all experience when we were checking out of the grocery store. Hillary Clinton adopts an alien baby. Those were the good old days of fake news, right? But now it's actually much more confusing and complex. Turn on one of the 24-hour news stations, and you're going to see a headline or a story that reads, Russia hacked our servers. Change the channel to another 24-hour news station, and you will have the exact opposite story. Russia did not hack our servers. How are you supposed to be able to process this information? Well, we live in the information age, and we live in an age of confusion. But there's not only a lot of narratives and stories about politics, international relations, and even baby aliens. There's a lot of narratives about Jesus Christ. And all of these narratives tell us to do something different, and this can lead to confusion. For instance, take the view or the narrative of Jesus that he's always smiling. We've seen those t-shirts that say, smile, Jesus loves you, or the bumper sticker that says, smile, God loves you. This view says that you don't really need to change because Jesus loves everybody. You just need to learn to love yourself. It doesn't matter if you don't believe in, your, in, in Jesus because Jesus believes in you. Or perhaps another narrative we might hear from our culture is the health and wealth view of Jesus. This view says that Jesus wants you to be healthy and he wants you to be financially successful. All you have to do is believe really hard that Jesus is going to bless your life. Well, this is a view that originated in the United States, and we have exported this view all over the world. Uh, the next narrative is not one that originated here, but we imported this view from South America, the liberation view of Jesus Christ. This view says that Jesus identifies exclusively with the poor and the oppressed, and that we ought to help those who are poor and those who are oppressed find liberation, and that is our job as Christians. Well, there's another view that says all of Christianity is just a bit too confusing. You don't need to worry about the Old Testament or even parts of the New Testament. You just need to worry about exactly what Jesus said. Some of our Bibles have the words of Christ in red, so this is the red-letter view of Jesus. They only want to focus on the words of Christ. Well, all of these different narratives pull us in different directions, 
And this is just a handful of the many views that we experience, and this can lead us to confusion. In our passage this morning in Luke 9, we see that King Herod, or Herod the Tetrarch, is confused. And what is he confused or perplexed about? Well, he's perplexed by all the different narratives that are going around about Jesus Christ. Some of them say that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some of them say that Jesus is Elijah. And others say that he's one of the prophets of old. As Herod tries to process this, he's confused and he asks the question, who is this man, Jesus? Who's this guy that I keep hearing about? And immediately after this question, Luke gives us the narrative where Jesus feeds the 5,000 with five loaves of bread. Now, after this account of feeding the 5,000, what happens? Well, Jesus interacts with his disciples, and he asks the same essential question. Who do the crowds say that I am? Well, the disciples repeat these three confusing narratives, that Jesus was John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asks the same question, or essentially the same question, a third time. But who do you say that I am? To which Peter responds, you are the Christ of God. So in the midst of all of these different narratives, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at the question, who is the Christ? And specifically, who is the Christ in the passage about feeding the 5,000? After we look at this question, we're going to look at how we should live as a result. So what does the word Christ mean? Well, the word Christos in Greek or Messiah in Hebrew means the anointed one or a particular position that is chosen by God. And in the Old Testament, we have three offices that are anointed offices or anointed positions. The first one we have here is the office of the prophet. The prophet was anointed by God to be able to proclaim God's words to the people in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we find out this is an anointed office in Psalm 105. The second office that is anointed is the office of the priest. Now, the priest would represent the people, and they would go on behalf of the people to God. And we see them in the Bible offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. And we see that Moses was the one who anointed the priests in Exodus 40. And finally, the last office we have that's anointed is the office of the king. And in 1 Samuel 16, we see that when King David was chosen to be the new king over Israel, he was anointed by Samuel. So we have all three of these uh, anointed offices in the Old Testament. But the New Testament tells us that Jesus fulfills and Jesus is all three of these offices. And all three of these, Jesus as prophet, priest, and kings, appears in the feeding of the 5,000. So we're going to look and see how Jesus fulfills these roles in the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, but even though all three of these are present, Luke actually emphasizes the role of prophet above the other three roles. Remember I said that there were three particular narratives before the story and three particular narratives after the story? What do all of those narratives have in common? Well, it says that John, or Jesus was John the Baptist, and who was John the Baptist? He was a prophet, good. And then it says Jesus was Elijah, who was Elijah? A prophet, excellent. And if you still didn't pick up on it, it says that maybe Jesus is one of the prophets of old. So sandwiched before and after this story, Luke frames the idea that Jesus is a prophet. Well, the story for the feeding of the 5,000 is indeed a pretty famous story. Uh, what happens is Jesus takes his disciples to a place called Bethsaida, and they are outside of the town, and there's a huge crowd that follows Jesus out. And Jesus gladly receives them, he begins teaching, and he heals them. But as the day wears on, 
they experience a problem. The people become hungry. There's no restaurants, there's no shops, and there's not enough bread to share. So the disciples say, we need to send them away. But Jesus says, you give them something to eat. The disciples don't know what to do. They only have five loaves of bread. But here Jesus takes the five loaves, blesses it, and then distributes the bread so everybody can eat. Now, before we go any further, I have to tell you that I have struggled with this passage for years. I've believed it to be true for a very long time, well over a decade, but I was always embarrassed that my non-Christian friends would find out that I believed in miracles, and particularly this miracle. But as I've worked through it over the years, I've come to appreciate this passage in a brand new light. And one of the reasons I can appreciate this passage is I understand how this passage would have connected to Israel's history. Anybody that was reading this in the first century that was Jewish, they would have connected this story to that of Moses. Now, remember Moses, he was the one who took the people of Israel out of Egypt. And think about the Exodus story for a moment. What did Moses do? Well, he took a large group of people out into the wilderness. And when they were in the wilderness, what problem did they experience? They didn't have any food. And who did the people complain to? Well, they complained to Moses. And what did Moses do? Moses prayed to God, and God supplied manna, or bread, to his people. So in this passage, it's almost as if Jesus is reliving the life of Moses. Jesus takes a group of people out into the wilderness. What's the problem they experience in the wilderness? There's not enough food. What do the disciples do? They complain to Jesus. What does Jesus do? He prays, but he doesn't wait for God to distribute bread in the morning. He actually passes the bread out himself. Now, this might seem like a mere coincidence, but Jesus is actually fulfilling a prophecy that was given by the prophet Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So the great prophet Moses says there's going to be another prophet you really need to listen to. You need to obey him. And then Jesus is doing even greater miracles and a greater work than Moses was. But the Jews wouldn't have only thought of Moses in this context of Jesus being a prophet. They would have also thought of the great prophet Elisha. There's a passage in 2 Kings 4 that's a little bit uh, obscure or not, not that well known, where an, unmanned, an unnamed man comes to Elisha, and he comes and he brings him 20 loaves of bread. And let's see, and he has with him 100 men. So let's see how Elisha responds. Elisha says, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this, the 20 loaves of bread, before a hundred men? So he, meaning Elisha, repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he, the servant, set it before them. They ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Now, do you see the connections between Elisha and Jesus? So in Elisha's story, there are 100 hungry men. In the story of the feeding of the 5,000, there are 5,000 hungry men. In the story of Elisha, there are 20 loaves of bread. In the story of Jesus, there are only five loaves of bread. Elisha has a complaining servant. Jesus has complaining disciples. Uh, Elisha is dependent upon the word of the God, the word of the Lord, and says that the Lord will supply all of their needs so much that there is going to be some left over. 
And we see the same thing happen with Jesus Christ. He supplies all of their needs, and there's enough left over. Twelve baskets full. And if you think back to a couple previous chapters, Jesus is fulfilling his own prophecy here. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Jesus fulfills this prophecy just a few chapters later. He supplies food and bread to thousands of people who were hungry. So everybody that was reading this in the first century, they would have realized that this passage is telling us Jesus is a prophet. And not just any prophet, he is the anointed prophet. He's a prophet that is better than Moses, and he's a prophet that's better than Elisha. But that's not the only thing we see. We do see Jesus as a prophet, but we also see Jesus as the great priest. Now, we usually think of a priest as one who forgives sins, and we don't see Jesus here forgiving sins or or causing a a sacrifice to take away sins, Uh, but he's actually doing something much bigger. Uh, He's not taking away the sins of an individual person, maybe the guy who is lame. Uh, He's not healing just one specific person. He's actually redeeming all of creation. And this is what the priest is doing here, Jesus. He is reversing the curse. You see, in the opening pages of Scripture, we see a picture of the world that's much different than we live in today. In uh, the original creation, uh, humanity was going to be at harmony with nature. Of course, humanity would have to go out and work the ground, yes, but they weren't going to have difficulty in laboring. They were going to be able to reap the harvest without struggle, without sweat, without thorns, and without thistles. So where did all of the difficulty come in whenever we have our manual labor, or any work for that matter? Well, the difficulty with getting bread came from the curse. And this is whenever whenever God is punishing Adam for his sin. He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So the difficulty with eating bread, the reason why people get hungry, the reason why we run out of money, the reason why we run out of food, is not because that was the original design. All of that came because of the curse. But along with this curse in the Old Testament, there was also a promise. And there was a promise for free bread. Now, we already saw a little bit of this in the life of Moses whenever he supplied manna. That was bread that they did not have to work for. They only had to trust God. But we also see this picture of free bread occurring way back in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 14, there was a mysterious priest named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a very mysterious figure in the Bible. Uh, He's not mentioned that frequently, but he plays a very important role in the story of redemption. Whenever Abraham went out to rescue his nephew Lot, who had been kidnapped, Abraham goes in this great battle, and he uh, rescues Lot and all of Lot's companions, and they're coming back to their town. And on their way back to the town, they're passing through this valley or this deserted place, this wilderness, and they meet this priest, Melchizedek. And you know what Melchizedek offers Abraham and his friends? He gives them two things. One is bread, very good, and the other one is wine, a picture of the Lord's Supper, but that's for a different sermon. Here we see that Melchizedek is reversing the curse. He's bringing free bread to the people of God just like Moses was doing, and just like Jesus Christ was doing. 
One of my favorite passages in Scripture, probably my favorite passage, is Isaiah 52 to 56. And right in the middle of that passage, Isaiah 55, there is a promise for free food. God says that one day we're going to have free food, we're going to have free wine, we're going to have free milk, and we're going to have free water. Food and drink without money and without price. It's the free gift of God. You don't have to work for it. You're not going to have to work the ground or produce it by the sweat of your own face. But it does come through the sweat of somebody else. You see, the word sweat is a kind of a gross word. It's something we're all experiencing now as the, the weather warms up. But it's not really mentioned in the Bible that frequently. We see the word sweat in the curse that we just saw in Genesis 3, where you have to work the ground and you have to sweat for your food. You see the word sweat a second time in the book of Ezekiel, when it was talking about what type of clothing the priests should wear and should not wear. They weren't allowed to wear clothing that would make them sweat in the temple. But then the last time you see the word sweat is with Jesus Christ in the book of Luke. Whenever he is in the garden getting ready to go to the cross, he is sweating in anxiety as he awaits the judgment that he's about to face. And this is a picture of the redemption of the whole creation. You see, the curse brought all the difficulties associated with work. But Jesus Christ here takes the curse upon himself. We see him become the one who is sweating And we see him become the one that reverses all the problems associated with sin. And in the feeding of the 5,000, we get a glimpse of his redemptive power. Who can take away the curse? Who can take away the sins? Only a priest can take away sins and reverse the curse. And we see Jesus Christ acting as a priest in this passage. And the last point is that we see Jesus Christ acting as the anointed king. Now, I don't think any of us have really lived under an absolute monarch, but we can all imagine what it would be like, right? A king or a queen that has complete authority over all the subjects in their kingdom. But can we really imagine what a king would look like if they had complete authority and power over nature? And that's what Jesus shows us here. Now, notice something quite interesting about the disciples. The disciples are not expecting Jesus to do a miracle at all. They see a natural problem, and they offer two potential natural solutions. They see, oh, we have 5,000 hungry people. How do we feed them? Well, we go and we buy something, but we don't have money. That's not going to work. Or we give them the bread that we already have. We don't have very much, so that's not going to work. Jesus, we can't help these people. So the disciples were not expecting a miracle. Uh, Sometimes we're expecting the first century people to just be waiting for miracles to pop up from behind every rock. But that's not the case at all, right? Now, we tend to think about these first century people. We think, well, maybe they believed in miracles because they didn't have science, right? We have the scientific method, and that tells us that miracles don't happen. Well, part of that is true. Uh, Part of it is true. The, the, The part that is not true is disciples are clearly not expecting a miracle. But the part that is true is that they did not have the scientific method. Now, why didn't these people have the scientific method hundreds of years ago, at the time of Christ. Well, it's quite simple, actually. They didn't have the scientific method because they didn't have Christianity yet. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. There is a philosophical problem associated with science. It's been around for hundreds of years. It's been around for thousands of years, even before the time of Christ. And that problem is called the problem of induction, or the problem of observation, and it is a key component to believing in science, or to doing science. And what does the problem of induction say? Well, simply put, 
it says that you cannot use the past to determine what is going to happen in the future. So imagine with me that you own a coffee shop and you work the front counter of this coffee shop. And every morning for the last 10 years, Bill comes into your coffee shop. He orders an espresso and he leaves a $1 tip in your jar every day for 10 years. Is he going to come in tomorrow? Well, maybe you would probably plan on it, but maybe Bill changes his schedule. Maybe he decides that he's going to go on a vacation and he doesn't show up. Maybe Bill is going to develop a taste for tea and he's going to go to the tea shop down the road. Or maybe he's not going to have a dollar in his wallet, so he just leaves you a few quarters instead. So you can't make any determination based on past actions for what's going to happen in the future. And they would do the same type of thing even with something more scientific. Take a pencil, for instance. If you drop this pencil 10 times, it's going to fall to the ground 10 times. So if you drop it on the 11th time, is it going to fall to the ground? Well, probably. You're probably going to bet that it would. But there's no philosophical, there's no rational reason why it should. Maybe the pencil changes his mind like Bill and decides he's going to go get a cup of tea. Maybe the pencil changes his mind and says, I'm going to stay put. Or maybe the laws of gravity change their mind or they run out of dollar bills and say, well, sorry, not today. So this might seem silly to us, but this is a serious philosophical problem that existed by the great Greek philosophers. They were the ones who understood it first, but we see it popping up even in cultures like India. India has some great philosophers. They understood the problem of induction as well as some of the modern philosophers like David Hume and Bertrand Russell. So how do we find ourselves today in 2021 where we're in a culture that values science so highly? Well, that's where the Christianity component comes in. In the Middle Ages, theologians were able to plug in the gaps for the scientists. They were able to say that God is the one who sustains creation. He's the one that orders it, that keeps everything consistent. And because God is in control, he's the one that's going to make it consistent in the past, and he's the one who's going to make it consistent in the future. And just think about it. Where did science emerge from? Well, it came from a Christian culture, didn't it? It did not come from a pagan culture where there's many different gods fighting from one another because if that's your philosophy, the world is not going to be consistent. And it didn't come from an Eastern Asian philosophy or an African philosophy or an American philosophy that had this, all these spirits, this animism or these spirits living behind trees and behind rocks because that means nature would not be consistent. So what is the foundation of science? Historically, it's Christianity, and philosophically, it's the God of the Bible who upholds all of nature. And we see that God is the foundation of science, but we also see in this passage that he is the foundation of miracles. They're not inseparable. And here, Jesus is showing that he is God, that he has authority over all nature. He's acting as the kingly role. So who is the Christ? Well, he is the anointed one. He's the anointed prophet who is greater than Moses and greater than Elisha. He is the anointed priest, the one who reversed the curse over all creation. And he is the anointed king, the one who is ruling over every grain of wheat and every particle in existence. So if this is the narrative that Luke is setting forth, is Jesus as the Christ, then what does that mean for his disciples? What should his disciples do? Uh, Jesus gives his disciples two commands in this passage. 
But before we jump into those commands, I want you to notice that this passage is focused on the disciples. It's not focused on the crowds, no matter how much our Sunday school curriculum tells us that it is. Jesus, yeah, he feeds the crowds and he heals them, but after that, we don't see anything about the crowds, at least not in this chapter. Whenever we turn the chapter to Luke 10, we see that Jesus actually pronounces a woe or pronounces a judgment on this town, Bethsaida. Why? Because they did not believe. This is one of the reasons that the smile Jesus loves you narrative is incomplete. Yes, Jesus loves his people, and yes, Jesus loves his creation, but he also pronounces judgment. He also condemns unbelief, and we see that in the next chapter. In John's account of this gospel, John gives a more fuller description of Jesus' interaction with the crowds. And do you know what Jesus says to them? Jesus says, you didn't come after me because you loved me or because you saw me do a great miracle. You just came to follow me because you wanted more bread. You had your fill of food and you came back to me. And this is one of the reasons that we cannot accept the health and wealth gospel. Yes, Jesus wants you to be uh, successful. He wants you to have riches. But all of those riches are in heaven. They're not meant for this life. Jesus can give you all of these great things, but he promises you a cross to carry. He promises you suffering, and he condemns those who only come to him for what they can get. And also notice the liberation narrative, the one that says that Jesus is associated with the poor exclusively and delivering the poor from their oppression. That view is completely silent from this passage. Think about it. Jesus has an army if you wanted it. He has 5,000 people. He probably has their families with him. He's got kids. He's got moms and, and maybe grandparents with him. He could take that great big group of people and he could go topple the oppressive Roman institutions if he wanted to, but he doesn't do anything like that. He could even stage a peaceful march to protest, but he doesn't do that because his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is working on a completely different plain than we are thinking. And lastly, we must reject, or reject in part anyway, the red letter view of Jesus. The view that says that only what Jesus actually says in the Bible is what's important. And we reject this view because it doesn't go far enough. What does Jesus say? He says, if you don't listen to his disciples, you're going to be like dust that's shaken off of their sandals. So if you follow the words of Jesus, you have to follow all of them. And these words are telling you to follow his disciples, the people who wrote most of the Bible. So with all of these different views in mind, we have to think, well, why is Jesus focused on the disciples? What is Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus is trying to make his disciples like himself. He's trying to make his disciples into prophets, into priests, and into kings. Throughout the life of Jesus, we've seen Jesus go around and he has been proclaiming like a prophet the gospel of the kingdom. And what does Jesus have his disciples do at the beginning of this passage? He tells them to go out like prophets and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And we've seen Jesus acting in a kingly role with authority over nature by healing diseases and even casting out demons. And what does he do in the beginning of chapter 9? He sends out his disciples to cast out demons and to heal. He gives them his kingly authority. And in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is the one who takes the bread, he multiplies it, but he doesn't give it to the crowds. He gives it to his disciples, and his disciples spread the bread. 
Now, this doesn't only apply to Jesus. He's not the only prophet, priest, and king. And it doesn't only apply to the disciples and to the apostles. The Bible says that all of us, the entire church, are prophets, priests, and kings. The church is compared to a temple, a building. And it says that Jesus is the cornerstone. And if Jesus is the cornerstone, he's also the prophet, priest, and king. And the foundation of that temple, or the foundation of the church, is the apostles, and the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And what is the rest of the church structure? Well, that's the church throughout the ages. And if the foundation and the cornerstone are the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, what does that make us? It also makes us prophets, priests, and kings. And in the first letter of Peter, we see Peter telling us that that is exactly what the church is. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession, that you may proclaim his excellencies of him, who has called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. There has never been such a thing as an ordinary Christian. You were called into his royal family. You were called into the priesthood of Jesus Christ, and you are a prophet, and you were called to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Now, I said that Jesus gives us two commandments, or gives his disciples two commandments, which apply to us, his prophets, priests, and kings in training. The first commandment that we see is Jesus tells his disciples to take nothing. In the beginning of this chapter, he calls them together, and he says, okay, I'm going to give you power, and I'm going to give you authority. I'm going to send you out to be my prophets. But before you go out, you have to leave everything you have behind. Take for your journey nothing, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and not even a change of clothes. Whenever you think about it, you think these disciples were sent out completely unprepared. They didn't have anything for their mission. But this is what Jesus Christ requires of all of his followers. You have to die to yourself. You have to leave your old world behind. Think about it. What could you possibly offer Jesus Christ who's the king? What could you possibly offer Jesus Christ who's the prophet? And what could you possibly offer Jesus Christ who is the priest? Your good works? The Bible says that those are filthy rags. What is somebody who comes to Jesus Christ in their own righteousness? It's somebody who is proud. And God hates pride. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you want to be a prophet, priest, and king with Jesus Christ, you have to go to him completely empty of all of your works. And that's what we see the disciples doing in the first part of this passage. They leave everything and take nothing with them. Which is part of the reason the disciples are so confused when Jesus gives them the second command. The second command is you give them something to eat. I can just imagine what was going through the disciples' minds. Jesus, you want us to give 5,000 people something to eat? Didn't you read what you just told us to do 10 verses earlier? You told us not to take any bread and not to take any money. How in the world do you expect us to feed 5,000 people when you've just commanded us to leave everything behind? Now, does it seem like maybe Jesus is being cruel here, that he's commanding the disciples to do something that they can't do? Well, that's actually one of the main storylines of the Bible. God gives Adam and Eve a commandment. Do they keep the commandment? No, they break it. God gives Israel a good law that's supposed to lead to life, but can they keep it? No, they fail. 
And here we see God giving his disciples a commandment. Take nothing and give them something to eat. Can they fulfill it? No, of course not. But what does Jesus do? Jesus provides everything that they need. This is the redeeming side of the storyline of the Bible. Adam and Eve failed in the garden, but Jesus Christ is the new Adam who succeeded in withstanding the temptation from Satan. Yes, Israel failed to keep the law, but Jesus is the new Israel that obeyed every commandment and fulfilled the entire law. And Jesus Christ is the bread of life, and he gives himself freely to those who want. And that is, who, that is how the disciples were able to fulfill this command. Everything that God requires of us, he gives us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ supplies everything that we need. In this passage, we are called to become like Jesus Christ. We are called to die to the world. We're called to give people something to eat. We're called to become prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus Christ is the true king ruling over all creation. And he invites us to rule with him, not with swords and not with weapons, but with our faith we can overcome the world. Jesus Christ is the prophet that proclaimed the kingdom of God, and he invites us to proclaim his excellencies. And Jesus Christ is the priest. He was the sacrifice that was sacrificed for us, and now he invites us to become a living sacrifice for him and his kingdom. There are many narratives about Jesus Christ, but scripture tells us that Jesus is the anointed prophet, the anointed priest, and the anointed king. There will always be many rumors about Jesus, but there will only be one truth about the Christ of God. And may Christ give us all an abundance of his spirit so that we may give them something to eat. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all of the good things that you have given us. We thank you most of all for giving us your son, Jesus Christ, the anointed one from on high, who is our prophet, who is our priest, and who is our king. I pray, Lord God, that you would bless all of us as we try to walk in his footsteps with your grace and with the power of his spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would bless your church here and far, that you would help us to be prophets and priests and kings like Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.